What's up, you guys? And welcome back to Tune In Tuesdays with your favorite gals, the H's. I'm Haley. And I'm Hannah. Let's get synced. for tuning in today. We are so excited you joined us. As always, it's the H's. We're here. We're here. Vibing. We have another H with us, as promised. We, who is it? Who's that gal? <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> yes, it's Dr. H, but but ladies and gentlemen, we're not just going to stop at Dr. H. We would like to introduce her to you in the light of her other identities. She does it all. She is a magician. And she is, what's the other one you said? I'm a gynecologist. Gynecologist. <laughs> Boys and gals, that's the first time I've ever heard of those two things. Ever. What a title. Dr. H is back to share her expertise on the lady parts and gender equality because it's a vibe. So today we're going to start our vibe check. Yeah, we're just going to talk about some gender equality. You know, all your period questions, pregnancy, and then a little fact or fiction section. So we got a jam-packed agenda, and then we're just going, dive in. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's set it off with a clink, as always. Yep. Must. Must. If there's a human <laughs> next to you, you can physically clink them. If there's not, you already know, smash it on the mic. Thuds <laughs> so- <laughs> on three. We suck. <laughs> Okay, so Dr. H, I wanted to specifically share a little bit about gender equality today in three more specific areas. One is just equal pay among the genders, and then speak a little bit about differing gender identities and kind of how people talk about those, as well as maternity leave and kind of what that looks like right now and maybe some problems with it. So yeah, Dr. H. Yeah, those are those are my top three gender equality issues, because in the United States, we probably have the worst maternity leave policy. There's no federal policy on maternity leave. So, you know, if we lived in France, when you have a baby, you get a year off fully paid. You have health care during that entire year during which you have uh, pelvic physical therapy, breastfeeding support and all of these other wonderful things. In the United States, however, the best possible maternity leave policy that I have been, um, that a patient of mine has had was six months fully paid. And there are only, there's only one employer that I know of that does that. Mm-hmm. Bank of America and Wells Fargo, which are two of our huge employers here, they do 16 weeks fully paid for both parents, wow. which I think is fantastic. But most employers only offer two-thirds of your pay for six weeks, and then it's unpaid for the next six weeks. So it's pretty, I mean, going back to work six weeks after having a baby is pretty rough. Right. And so most people want to extend that to 12 weeks. Even at 12 weeks, it's rough, but they have to take that extra six unpaid frequently. And what is the, you would say, kind of average just physical healing time for that, whether you've had a cesarean section or you gave birth vaginally? What is? I think it, I think it takes a good eight to 12 weeks mm. 
before people start feeling normal, but you're not back to pre-pregnancy weight typically at that point. Right. So it takes a long time and you're still going through a lot of changes with your body. A lot of women are trying to breastfeed. Still, the baby's not sleeping through the night. So Mm -hmm. this deprivation makes all that more difficult. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of pressure on women to have to come back much earlier than is really that healthy for them. And yeah, probably doesn't help. Um, I know we talked a lot about last episode postpartum. So I'm sure just the stress of having a newborn baby, the stress of, um, you know, your body going through all these changes, sleep deprivation probably does not help. the. And then having a full-time job on top of that. um, It really can push some people over the, it pushes a lot of people over the edge, Mm -hmm. you know, and as someone that, that had postpartum depression myself, I mean, I, looking back, I saw that all unravel in my own life. And so I encourage all of my patients to take as much maternity leave as they possibly can. For sure. And I'm assuming that paternity leave is even less. Typically it is, unless you're with one of those big bank employers. Right. They get nothing to two weeks typically. Right. Which is very difficult. Yeah. Um, I know for me personally, my mom went back after like six weeks and she had triplets. So... I was like, I don't know how she did it, <laughs> but um, she didn't have yeah. a choice. Yeah, she didn't have a choice uh, exactly. And my father had just been laid off from his job, so they only you're. I think you're kind of lucky if you even get six weeks paid. I know some people have to take sick days, um, so it's not even guaranteed. Have all of their PTO before they can even use maternity leave. So then they come back to work not having any days to take off for a sick baby, mm-hmm. or they get sick. Yeah, it's really, um, it's pretty terrible compared to the rest of the industrialized world. Right. Well, shout out to Wells Fargo and Bank of America. I did not know that they... And they pay for infertility treatment. Wow. Uh, Wow. 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 Yeah. Is that like, is there a cap on that? Um, I think it's a cap on a certain number of cycles. Mm. They can do not a monetary amount. Wow. I'm blown away because I didn't think they would give one that much maternity leave or two kind of support people. Well, when you think about half the workforce is women. Mm -hmm. If you want to have good quality employees, you need to be able to support women during the reproductive years. It's just, I mean, that's how our species is going to survive. For sure. I think the focus for so long has been on the job. Mm -hmm. and having someone there to do it. But really, you need to take care of the whole person and their family if you actually want your business to be successful. For sure. I I mean, I can imagine if I went to a job interview and I said, what's your maternity leave policy? Oh, you get like two weeks paid after that's PTO. I'm kind of like, oh, I don't know. (laughs) But And they have to understand that if they're hiring a woman who's married in her 20s or 30s, sometimes 40s, that she probably wants to have at least a baby or two. For sure. And you need to have that built in so that they can do that successfully. Yeah. And shout out to those pioneers. I know. (laughs) I think you mentioned last episode that your best advice for any woman that is looking to even start a family is don't even mention it until you have to. Because there's still bias out there, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Yeah, there yeah. is some bias with hiring. Um, a lot of my patients that are already pregnant that are looking for jobs worry a lot that the employer will notice that they're pregnant and make their decision based on that, which they're not legally allowed to do, but, sure. but it still happens. Yeah, 
I know for me personally, it's like when I go into a job interview, luckily I work at a university right now, so they weren't like, you plan on having kids, but people will ask you, even though it's 100% not legal to ask someone if they're planning on having children. So yeah, a lot of problems with the, the maternity leave and just finding work and feeling comfortable about what you're going to do if you are planning to have a child while you're employed by that person. But moving on to some more work-related issues, tell us about the equal pay struggle mm. right now. <laughs> Let yeah, us know. So there's a lot there's a lot of data out there now about um, equal pay for men and women. And women typically make 20% less than their male counterparts. We think there's a lot of different factors that go into that, obviously, but one of them is that women typically aren't as comfortable asking for more or being more aggressive with their negotiation of their salaries and their jobs. Um, and in the medical world, which is you know where I have the, the most experience, women are typically not in the roles of leadership. And so I think you know, even though over half of, of people coming out of medical school are women, like we now outnumber the men, I think slowly, steadily, that's going to change. Sure. But, um, but generally speaking, women make more, make less than men in just about any job. Yeah. I think a lot of people think that's a myth. They don't believe it. They're like, that's, that's not legal. How could you pay someone less because they're a female? But like you said, it's definitely happens. There's actually good data. Yeah. On that, unfortunately. Which is sad because Mm -hmm. why? I mean, really no good rhyme or reason. I, there's just a lot of, uh, I would say, bias or discrimination against women in the workplace. So I don't support any business that I know has kind of misogynistic views. I stopped using Uber a long time ago because one of their executives in a board meeting, uh, they were suggesting they hire more women at the top, you know, kind of more people in in charge. And he said, and it's, I think there's a video out there, when there's more women, that just means more talking. And I was like, we're just going to go with Lyft. <laughs> We're not going to support Uber anymore, but um, oh, no. we could talk about that, that forever. Separate episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And put you on the schedule. Disgusting. We're definitely not, we're not, we're not smacking off with that. We're not doing well with that. That scraping needs the, to be reevaluated. Scraping altogether. the surface. So next you had mentioned that you would like to talk a little bit about kind of how to speak to or just be more sensitive toward people that maybe do not fit into the female male category or they identify as cis or trans. What are your thoughts, advice for people that just are clueless about how how to address people that I don't identify? People very uncomfortable when they don't know what gender someone is. Mm-hmm. What you realize is that gender identity is a very wide spectrum. And just because someone is biologically or physically male doesn't mean that they identify as male or that they like females or that they like males. So really, you just don't know what each particular person's preferences until you ask them. Mm -hmm. And making assumptions, I think, can be very offensive. Making assumptions based on how someone is dressed or how someone looks or what body parts it looks like they have can be very offensive because going through a gender identity change for a person is an extremely difficult thing. Mm -hmm. You know, and so you're just you're you may be catching them at any point 
in that. So really the best thing is just to ask, mm-hmm. how would, how do you identify? What are your pronouns? Are you she, her, hers? Are you him, his, hers? Are you there? Do you not identify as either gender? You don't necessarily need to ask who they're attracted to because that's that really matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, I think just being sensitive to how they identify and how they would prefer to be addressed is the most important thing. Yeah. When I was in school, my advisor, she was actually specifically interested in the field of gender and she studied a lot of um, infertility research, just how we talk about gender, um, even, you know, infertility for males. I think I brought this up last episode. People don't really talk about that, but it's still something that applies to both genders. And one of the things I, we read this article, and I'm sure you can relate to this, in the field of gynecology or women's health, a lot of the times people will just assume that all women are heterosexual, and that's not always the case. So, I don't know if you've ever had an instance like that, but if you've had a patient that comes in... It's very frequently not the case. Right. There's a lot of just, oh, how many partners have you been with? You need to go ahead and get tested for, you know, all these sexually transmitted diseases, or they don't even ask about maybe your your sexual preference, or it's just very much so, oh, we're just going to go in with the assumption that all women are heterosexual, which is not always the case, or they don't always identify as female, but... Yeah, there's a lot of uh, gray areas out there that people just aren't really talking about because I think yeah, people feel um, when a patient comes in, the way to ask that question that the way I and my assistant typically ask it is, do you have sex with men, women, or both? That is how we figure out, you know, different. I mean, really different risk factors for them mm-hmm. and different things that we may need to address as far as their physical health goes. For sure, because if you if you only have sex with women. We're actually not worried about you getting chlamydia or gonorrhea because that's an infection in your cervix. Mm-hmm. So, but if you're having sex with both, then you're still at risk for that. For sure. So, and women who have sex with women may have different sexual issues than women that have sex with men. Right. So there may be different relationship issues, different physical issues, or you know, issues just even figuring out how to how to create pleasure for one another. Right. Well, I'm super glad that you guys are on board with that and asking because I'm sure a lot of people in the same practice are not. Um, I know for myself personally, my doctor has never asked me. They just say, how many partners have you been with? Mm-hmm. They don't know who. I don't, I don't I don't like asking that question. I feel like that's a very loaded question. It is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have never asked anyone how many partners they've had actually. Yeah. I, I really don't care. I mm-hmm. want to know, are you in a relationship now? Mm-hmm. And does that person respect you? Mm-hmm. I want to know, have you ever been a victim of sexual violence or assault? And are you having any problems? Like, are you concerned about anything right now? You know, I really don't think the number matters. Right. Yeah, it's kind of a <laughs> targeting question. I'll come in. They're like, have you been with anyone since your last visit? And I'm like, nice to meet you. It's very small. Yeah. And you're like, well, sh- how should I answer that? You know, yeah. it almost feels like pointing a finger. Mm-hmm. A for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just scraping the surface about all of these topics. But if anyone listening is interested in more, let us know and we will, we can have a whole segment yeah. dedicated yeah. to one of these. Definitely. But we got a lot more to discuss. So, Han, why don't you segue us into some of the questions? <laughs> you had them. Um, we're the bitches that ask them. These questions for our vagician, 
I know she knows the answers to them, no doubt about it. So we do have them split into categories. These are the the questions that you might have just daily that you really just don't know the answer to, nor do you have the comfort level level of someone with this expertise who can be able to give you an actual answer, right? That's not Google. That's not your mom and your aunt. That's not, you know, WebMD. Yes. (laughs) Dying, dying, dying. (laughs) So as always, Haley and I are just going to go back and forth with questions. Conversations might segue. Ladies and gentlemen, if you were listening to us for the second time, you know that we are familiar with the conversations that go stray. But my first question is, and when we say my, we're going back and forth. Some of these questions are from Haley and I, straight up, straight up and down. <laughs> we are fly. <laughs> we do not know the answer to some of these things as adult grown women. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of them we pulled, you know, collected. We did. We go to our Instagram. We have our advice box. You guys know linked in our link tree in our Instagram bio. But the first question is in relation to spotting in different colors, right? Different colors of your spotting. What do the different shades of blood mean? Because, you know, I, I think what I've always been told, Haley, you say the same thing. It just depends on how old the blood is, right? Yeah. Like that, so if blood, if blood sits in your uterus for a long time, the iron in it and the other components of it will liquefy and it'll come out. So blood that's been sitting in there a really long time is usually like really dark and goopy. Mm-hmm. But really to me, it doesn't matter to me like what the consistency is. It's really the amount. Is it happening at the expected time of the cycle? That's when I would think about doing some other kind of evaluation. Like if you're spotting in the middle of your cycle well, some people will do that when they ovulate, but if it, if you're having to use tampons, like it's heavy, like a period, then that needs to be evaluated because it could be a sign that you have a polyp in the uterus or something that we could just fix. But, and typically heavy bleeding is characterized as soaking a pad or a super tampon every two hours or sooner. So if you're, Girl, Haley. <laughs> if you're bleeding that's that heavy, that could be making you anemic and you probably need to go on some kind of menstrual regulation with pills, patch, neuvering, IUD, something to decrease the amount you bleed every month. I'd be lightheaded. Woozy. Tell out. Have you fallen out? No, I, I haven't. Surprisingly. I mean. You haven't done fell out? No, not yet. <laughs> I, <ain't going> <laughs> I, I try to take iron, Good. though, but uh, it's kind of, I don't know. It's, sometimes it surprises me. I'm like, how am I not wobbling? Well, <laughs> it usually looks like more than it actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a lot of bleeding to make your actual blood counts decrease. But if, if you're having bleeding that's that heavy, then probably need to do something about it. I, I probably should because I have, I, we mentioned last episode with you that I had switched to the cup. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's like this big. I'm talking six hours full. Like it is wild. <laughs> but maybe I should come in for a private visit. <laughs> <laughs> or we can do a visit right now. And- <laughs> I'm in the waiting room. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll just uh, I'll Mark and my- hold the light. Mars in there. <laughs> Mars in there. (laughs) She's a fly on the wall. She's back there sipping. Kind of a related question. More so about not really the amount, but maybe the the consistency again. 
Why do sometimes we see like larger clots of what appeared what appear to be kind of clots when you have your period? Is that normal? What isn't normal? Should it be happening at all? Is it concerning? What what are your thoughts? So really large clots mean that a bunch of blood went into the lining of the uterus all at once and it coagulated, which it's supposed to do because we have factors in our blood that should make it clot so that when you have a cut or scrape yourself, you don't bleed to death. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that will collect in the uterus and then it'll just all come out at the same time. So typically clots mean heavy bleeding. And for a lot of women that pass clots during their period, that is just a sign that they're having heavier than normal bleeding. If it's, if you pass a clot and it's a constant steady trickle of blood after that, to me, that's more bleeding than is normal. Okay. Yeah. But it's, it's normal to pass some clots. People go home after they have a baby. There's lots of clots and things that come out, but it should never be that much blood consistently, especially with a constant steady trickle. Okay. So clot every once in a while. Okay. Yeah. All the time. And they're like, Oh, I passed clots with my period. I'm like, okay. You know, how big are they? If they're like baseball size, that's a lot. Like we probably need to talk about that. If they're like dime quarter size, that's normal. I'm going to just, I'm going to just shut the fuck up because I'm getting here like, I have clots sometimes and they're painful. They're painful. I see them in the shower and I'm sitting here thinking like, my clots are big. My clots are painful. And I'm seeing this like baseball size. I'm just like, zip. <laughs> I, I would know probably that say mine is like, I don't know. Dime. Maybe quarter. Maybe. Maybe. But That's I do be clotty. I do be clotty okay. for sure. That's okay. And I can like, it, it's pain. It feels like I can literally feel the blood clots. Don't call me crazy. I feel like I can I feel know. myself. When it, when, it comes through, when it comes through your cervix, your cervix has to open a little bit. So your uterus it's can cramp. Out. It out. Yeah. It's, it's it, can a, be very, it can be very painful and you can feel that happening. <gasps> yeah, I definitely feel that. Definitely not the size of a baseball. You mean some people are p- passing baseballs? clots through their cervix Mm -hmm. i need to stop complaining because i do not have it as bad as i thought i did to be honest that's insane okay next question this is a question that i always wondered about since being younger and hearing about it for the first time wondering if it has actual true like medical anatomy benefits kegels talk to me about them so kegels are really helpful Okay. Okay. Okay, So your pelvic floor is like a bowl and it's a lot of muscles that are all sort of overlapping and interconnected and they connect with your glute muscle. It's your glute muscles, your pelvic floor muscles and your abs. And so your pelvic floor is part of your core strength. So really Kegels are a part of doing Pilates or core strengthening. Like when you pull your belly button to your spine and you pull your pelvic floor up and in, you're strengthening your entire core. I don't know about you, Haley, but I just did it with you. You don't need to just sit and like squeeze your vagina, but (laughs) doing actual core strengthening where you engage all the muscles is what's really beneficial. Not just like, you know, squeezing. Okay. Just making it just want to engage the pulsate. <laughs> and there are people that actually specialize in this. They're called women's health physical therapists or pelvic floor physical therapists. And they have all these different um, ways to assess pelvic floor 
weakness and Ooh. give you specific exercises to do for it. So I send I send most people to pelvic floor physical therapy after they have a baby for sure. So you but can just do it on your own. You don't have to have the Kegel balls. Do you need the Kegel balls? No. So what you're I'm kind of hearing in there and squeeze it with your vagina. Then you know you're engaging all the muscles. <laughs> Makes sense. I mean, okay. Well, so- it in. You can have your partner help you. Ooh, and it's kind of like a little ab workout too. It is. It is. I like that. Yeah. One of the best exercises to do is you lay on your back with your knees bent, pull your pelvis up like a bridge. Yes. And then pull your pelvic floor in, belly button to spine, hold for five to 10 seconds, and then release down. Yes. And you do about 10 reps of that a couple times a day, and that will help you coordinate your pelvic floor. Wow. I'm going to try that right after this. <laughs> We need to flex these floors. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So next one. And this is probably a lot, a lot of people are wondering this. We all have it, but the pubic hair. Why, why are people so weirded out by it? Should they be, are there health benefits to, to not doing anything with it? Are there health benefits to getting rid of it? What are your thoughts? The only benefit to getting rid of pubic hair is the way it looks. If you like the way that it looks without hair, that's the only reason. The pubic hair is there to protect the sensitive skin of the vulva and the vagina. Really, it should be there. At least a landing strip all the way down. Mm. So shaving the bikini line, all fine, but you really don't need to go full Brazilian because a lot of people will get increased irritation of that skin. They think they have more discharge because the hair's not like there to sort of, you know, soak up discharge Mm -hmm. and is only for aesthetics. It's not, there is no benefit to shaving it. Really, it's healthier, better to leave it there, at least some, at least, you know, leaving some there. And even if you, it doesn't have to be like bald. If you don't like a lot of hair there, you could just trim it with a beard trimmer instead Mm -hmm. and just leave some, but it doesn't have to be like, you know, sticking out everywhere. So it's better for it to actually better to leave it there. Yes. Good to know. Yes. At least some. Mm -hmm. Y'all better be out here rocking the landing strips 2021. (laughs) Right. Ladies, talk those razors. Your bushes need you. (laughs) Well, and so so many people get razor burn and that can get infected. I see a lot of people that have issues with getting these like boils and things like that from shaving If you're somebody that gets that, really the best thing to do is either get a bunch of disposable razors and use a new one each time, Mm -hmm. or you wash the area with Hibiclens, which is an over-the-counter soap that you can get that will sterilize the skin. So anytime you put razor to skin, you get these tiny microscopic cuts and tears in the skin that bacteria can get in. And in that part of your body, because there's like sweat, there's bacteria living on your skin, it makes it more it makes it easier to get a little localized skin infection. One of those like ingrown hair bumps that gets pus in it and gets really painful. Mm-hmm. So you do the Hibiclens after you shave and that will sterilize the skin and help prevent those. And then you just wash with that two or three times a week, just on the outside skin, nothing up in the badge. And anyone that's wondering where they can get that CVS, Walgreens, anywhere. It's in a green bottle. And what's it called? H I B I. C-L-E-N-S, Hibiclens. Never heard of it. Sterilize those parts. Well, not I know bad for me. Parts, not your genitals. 
in the summertime, you know, it's just socially not acceptable to have hair poking out of your bikini. So I feel like I got to be a spring chicken and get Yeah, irritated. and so. home gals can't get full-size bikinis anymore. We're just <laughs> squeezing what we got and what they got on the shelf. So we just yeah. trash. Totally. Yeah, and you guys are too young for the skirt. You know, you just can't, you can't do the mom skirt yet. Yeah. Yeah. Those of us in our forties, we can, we can rock with the mom skirt. So if you decide you don't want to do the bikini shave or wax or whatever, eh, it doesn't matter, but y'all are too young for that. <laughs> All right. Good to dream it about the know. days where I can wear the, the swim skirt. <laughs> are you looking forward to those days? Yeah. Cause those gals really do have the best time. They, they, they literally they wake up. They really hang out. Nobody can see it in the skirt. Yeah. Covers the oh, skirt. Oh yeah. Comfort. You don't got to be worried about which angle you sit. It's all about the comfort. No. Instead, one wrong move and yeah, you got a nip slip. Mm-hmm. Or kind of out. Mm-hmm. We're talking nips or lips, one of the two. <laughs> so one of the two. Well, no. It goes to the conversation we were having earlier about the large labia menorah. Yeah. Like some people have to tuck those into their bathing suit. Yes. Yeah. If you make a wrong move, it could slip out. Yeah, so the squirts and skirts. I mean, you really have to make those decisions based on those. But there's procedures for those. And yeah. our magician, she she performs them. If you could if you could have guessed. So if you need a little trim, that's normal. It's very I normal. Have a very large labia menorah that like stick out further than is comfortable for them. Like they just get a lot of friction. There's irritation. Sometimes they have to like move them or spread them to pee or have sex. That is not something that most people want to deal with. Mm-hmm. And so there's a surgical procedure that we do called labiaplasty that makes those labia menorah smaller so that they don't have those symptoms with it. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to never thought of. Literally. Mm-mm. You don't have to live with that, ladies. You don't have to live with that. Nope. You just go to the OBGYN, have them take a look at it. And it's all normal. Like there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with it. It's completely, and everybody's labia look very different. Mm-hmm. But for people that get, irritation and have difficulty having sex or going to the bathroom, that is something that I would consider doing something about. Yeah. That's good to know. Um, All right. Next question. A listener said, I'm not pregnant, but my period is late. Why could this be? So usually- Poor poor soul for asking us, right? (laughs) Going to Dr. H. The normal- menstrual cycle from the start of one cycle to the start of the next is 21 to 35 days. So there's a very wide range of how long your period can be and still be normal. So it may just be that she ovulated a little bit later that month. Typically you ovulate, if you have a 28 day cycle, you ovulate around day 14. The last part of the menstrual cycle, the luteal phase is usually two weeks. So if you ovulate at day 16 or 18, then your period's not going to come until 30 or 32. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's just a variation in when you ovulated that month. And if it's longer than 35 days, that could be a sign that you didn't ovulate that month, which happens sometimes, and it's totally fine. But it's nothing to be concerned about. You just kind of see how the next couple cycles go. If your period's really unpredictable and you're not trying to get pregnant, then going on birth control of some sort can just regulate it so that you have that predictability and know when it's coming or you just suppress it completely and don't get one, which is lovely. Because you can't yeah. suppress, remember? You do not have to have a period. 
Yep. That is about with birth control in our you last episode. Have a period. You do not have to have one. It's not important to clean out every month. That's a total myth. The lies. Yeah, maybe I need to get on that. <laughs> okay. So another just feminine health kind of wellness question. Breast exams. When do we need to do them? How often? How should we be doing it? And like, what are we exactly feeling for? What is normal? What What is not normal? I think that it's important to know what your own breasts feel like. Mm-hmm. And they feel different at different times of the month. So the because they respond to your different hormones. So the best time to do a breast exam is about a week after your period starts. They're the least lumpy bumpy. It's when your estrogen levels are the lowest. And I usually tell people to do what I call the circle method. So I start in the armpit and then go around the outside and just kind of spiral all the way to the inside. Mm-hmm. It's normal for them to feel a little bit lumpy, like rubbery feeling bumps in there, but something hard like a rock or something that feels stuck to the tissue under it or that doesn't move is abnormal. And that's when you want to go in. Nipple discharge can sometimes happen, but if it's if it continues and it's bloody or it just doesn't seem right, that needs to be evaluated. It's recommended to do breast exams monthly, although in large studies, self-breast exams and even clinical breast exams haven't been shown to decrease the mortality or anything with breast cancer. Mm. But I think it's just really important for people to know what feels normal and what's normal for them at various points in their cycle so that if something does pop up, they recognize it quickly and they know to come in. I do recommend that they do a better job with that. They lay down and do it or stand up? Because I've heard it doesn't matter. Yeah, sometimes it's easier doing it in the shower because, like, on the wet skin, your fingers can sort of slide across the skin more easily. Mm -hmm. Um, But you want to raise your arm and feel up into your armpit because there is some breast tissue and lymph nodes up there. And then just work your way around feeling kind of superficially right under the skin and then press in a little deeper to feel against your chest wall for the deeper tissue. Good to know because I've heard both. I've heard you need to lay down. No, matter. And a lot of people, their partner will do their breast exam. <laughs> you know, patients that come in, this in my boob. I'm like, awesome, awesome. Thank you for him doing your breast exam. Okay. Hey, they, they might be good for something after all. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. they're not just fun bags. They have. <laughs> So we know, and especially in our, well, one, I need to do more breast exams on myself for one slacker over here on that. Um, No one does them monthly. Just so you guys know, no one, including me ever does that. Mm. No one does it. The amount that you're, you know, it's like the equivalent to like flossing when your dentist asks you like checking your your IUD (laughs) for flossing you just floss the two weeks before you go to the dentist and you never check your IUD strings you just let the doctor do that on a yearly basis it's Mm -hmm. fine but with the breast it's just normal to feel every now and then and really more women have breast awareness than they think because you wash them in the shower you look at them in the mirror so you would see if there were asymmetry or Mm -hmm. nipple looked different like you would notice if there's something going on and most people have much more breast awareness than they think you do not have to do a formal exam to have that awareness. Okay. Yeah. So you're not a slacker. Okay. <laughs> Good. Um, and we talked a lot about this even, I mean, it, this has already come up in this episode and in our last episode with you hormones, what can we do to better support our hom- hormones? Now this is for both 
male and females, diet, exercise, supplements. Is there like some really just riveting information? So, that we no magic thing. So you're not in control of your hormones a lot of the time. It's your body's normal process for those hormones to go up and down. And that's how our body works and how we ovulate and how we can get pregnant and all of those good things. I think supporting your health by staying at a healthy weight and really trying to minimize or reduce the amount of white flour and sugar that you eat. So any fruits, any vegetables, all of that stuff is fine. It's just all of the processed foods that we've become used to eating don't support our health in general. And they affect our hormones in very different ways. So particularly the hormone insulin. And insulin is what ends up making us fat and diabetic later in life. Um, but insulin levels can also affect your period, affect fertility, you know, and affect how you look, a lot of different things. So generally speaking, you know, I know it sounds kind of whatever, but, you know, eating from the garden, drink from the well type of thing where you avoid processed foods as much as you can. That doesn't mean you can't go out and have like tacos and queso, you know, like that's totally fine. Mm -hmm. You just don't do that every day and you don't eat fast food and, you know, you just try and eat things. Look at what you're eating and ask yourself, is this good fuel for my body? Like, is this going to make me feel good? And is this going to help support my health? I think every woman should probably take a multivitamin and a prenatal vitamin is a great one to take because it helps your skin and hair and nails grow. So I think taking a daily multivitamin because a lot of women have, you know, various, they eat various things throughout the day or the week based on their work schedule. And maybe it's not super consistent. Mm -hmm. You do not have to get an expensive one or a prescription one. I just, I prefer the gummies, you know, like just generic gummies from the pharmacy because that's like my dessert after lunch. They taste like candy. But, you know, just to, just to help support, you know, and because I, I also do, I personally do intermittent fasting to regulate my weight. So I only eat, I eat two meals a day and one of those meals is usually a very light meal. So I feel like I may not be getting, you know, the amount of vitamin A and vitamin E and different things that that I need. So taking that multivitamin is really helpful. Okay. Yeah. A little bit of a sidebar from that too. I'm just generally curious. I eat way too much dairy. I'm well aware. Love ice cream, love cheese, love Mm -hmm. milk. We'll drink it literally out of the cup. Is the hormones in dairy products, should we be kind of careful about how much we're consuming or not unless you consume excessive amounts, which I don't think you do. I mean, if you drink a couple glasses of milk and eat some cheese and yogurt every day, that is not excessive. Mm -hmm. If you're drinking a half gallon to a gallon of milk a day, that's too much. (laughs) I don't know people that do that, but that's a while. There are people that do some crazy shit with their diet. (laughs) You know, I, I never assume that you, what I think is a regular amount or what I think is moderation is moderation for someone else. Right. But a lot of women, I don't know why this necessarily is, especially as we get older, like into our thirties, forties, you just don't process dairy as well. And it can cause more bloating. It doesn't mean you have a dairy intolerance or celiac disease or anything like that, but all that can be tested for, but it just doesn't like, 
sometimes for some people, it just doesn't get digested quite as easily and as well. So you adjust your diet and kind of eliminate certain things. If you feel like you're more bloated most days or like you're not having regular bowel movements, things like that, you just try these different things. Mm-hmm. Um, for people that eat a lot of dairy, I usually recommend taking a probiotic um, because dairy can make people constipated and the probiotic will help with, um, with them having regular bowel movements. Okay. So it sounds like just everything in moderation and you should be okay. (laughs) Um, So something we really haven't talked about yet, and I'm interested to know, I feel like a lot of people are, you know, they know most or not most, but they've heard of gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, everything that they kind of normally test for. But in recent years, HPV has started to kind of make its way into the conversation, or at least hopefully it is. And we just had some questions about kind of what is it generally? First of all, how common is it? How do you get it? And what should women do about it if they have it? Number one, get vaccinated for it. So the Gardasil vaccine, which covers nine different types of HPV, is covered by insurance for women up to age 45 now. So when it first came out, it was only approved up to age 26. Mm-hmm. And women that are my age, I'm in, I'm 42. We were too old to get it when it first came out, technically. Um, so I just got it as a 40-year-old when they mm-hmm. approved that um, through insurance, because why not? So HPV encompasses about you know, several hundred different viruses and they affect the body in very different ways. The ones that the Gardasil vaccine covers are the most, the types that are most likely to cause cervical cancer and the two types that are, that cause genital warts. So we have pretty much with, if, as long as everyone gets their routine childhood vaccinations and the HPV is part of that at around age 11 to 12, you will not get genital warts and you will probably not get cervical cancer. The reason I say probably is because there are weird, rare types of cervical cancer that are not HPV related, Mm -hmm. but you could still get HPV and have an abnormal pap smear later. It's just not one of the types that's going to give you cervical cancer down the road when you're older. So HPV is a virus that lives in the in different muco- what are called mucosal cells, which are cells in the cervix, in the mouth, in the throat, and it just makes the cells grow in a haphazard way. So when someone has HPV on their pap smear and the pap smear is abnormal, what that means is that when I look at their cervix under a microscope, I can see these areas where cells are growing in kind of a weird not really um, uniform way like they should be. Mm -hmm. And so I can take a sample of that. I can remove that completely and eliminate the risk of getting cervical cancer. Most healthy individuals who are non-smokers will clear the HPV virus in two to three years. So smoking makes you hang on to it longer. One of the many reasons, smoking increases your risk of every single type of cancer across the board. But if you're a non-smoker and healthy, usually you'll clear that HPV infection within two to three years. And it will not be a long-term issue. For those of you that have to get called back for abnormal pap smears, it is not a big deal. It is not a big deal. It is not a reason to be worried. And it's not a reason to start making your bucket list thinking you're dying of cancer. Right. Um, because I feel like the information out there about abnormal pap smears, there's like a small paragraph about 
these different mild changes that happen that go away on their own. It never becomes cervical cancer. That's 99% of people. But the stuff you read online is like the rest of it, pages and pages and pages about cervical cancer Mm -hmm. and how terrible it is. So the majority, the vast, vast majority of people have very mild changes. They maybe have to have a couple procedures to remove the abnormal area and it is not a long-term issue. HPV is not something that I feel like you need to disclose to your sexual partner because it's pretty much ubiquitous. If you were to check everyone for HPV at any given time, 80% of us are positive for one type or another. It's just whether or not in, you know, in my job, it's whether or not the woman has drawn the short straw of getting one of the ones that affects her cervix and gives her an abnormal pap smear. And then she has to come back in and have these different things done. But it does not, it doesn't worry me. It's not going to kill you. The beauty of having the HPV vaccine is that that's pretty much going to prevent you from getting cervical cancer ever. It's the only vaccine that we have that prevents cancer. So for anyone that's had HPV in the past, um, maybe they're wondering, am I just, am I good now? Is it going to come back? Is it just now? Yeah. If you have a new partner, you might get it from a new partner. It might come and go after a few years. In pregnancy, your immune system doesn't fight it off quite as well. So some people will be exposed to HPV and then it'll pop up while they're pregnant or just after mm. we you know, do more frequent pap smears or do different procedures to remove the abnormal cells. But I mean, very, 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 very rarely does it ever turn into cervical cancer. And cervical cancer is typically a very slowly evolving thing. So what I tell patients, like when they come in for the colposcopy, which is the procedure where I look at their cervix under the microscope and take extra samples, is that if you swore off doctors and never came back and decided you were just done with doing any type of pap smears or anything else, there's still a less than 1% chance that you would get cervical cancer 10 to 15 years from now. So the pap smear test is a very effective way to find people that could be at increased risk, Mm -hmm. but doing the pap smears regularly and following that prevents people from progressing to cervical cancer, which would happen typically over 10 to 15 years. So basically you're saying once your body, your body is likely to clear it. And after that, you're pretty much good unless you crack it again. Yep. You're good. All the things I didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot my notepad. And that was my follow-up question. Is the vaccine effective? I've had it. So led with that. She's like, yes. <laughs> yeah, she said it. Yes. Well, yeah. well, now, that it's, now that it's been out for 20 years, we're starting to see the decreased rates of cervical cancer in people that have been vaccinated. So it's definitely effective. It doesn't kill people. Mm-mm. It's, you know, my 11-year-old son got his first one at his 11-year-old visit last summer at the pediatrician, and I plan to give him the second one. And, you know, and he knows that it's a shot that will possibly prevent him from getting cancer. Mm-hmm. I'm for it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I'm all for it. Me too. But I was going to say something in there with it. Oh, I had a question just to segue into because you um, started talking about PAPS. When should – someone go to a gynecologist to get their first pap smear? Is it within the first year of becoming active or is there a certain age that you need so to that used again? To rule, actually. Yeah. So about 10 years ago, the recommendations changed. It used to be that you got a pap smear within a year of becoming sexually active or age 18. 
But now, because we know that HPV, we have a lot more data on HPV and how frequent it is in teenagers and young adults, and the fact that it usually doesn't progress to cervical cancer, the new recommendation is that you do not have to have a pap smear until age 21, regardless of sexual activity. I would have thought that was a myth, 100%. (laughs) 100%. So typically when I see young women or adolescents, I'm seeing them around between ages 14 and 16. They do not have to get a pelvic exam or anything until they're 21, unless there's some kind of issue that I need to evaluate. So those conversations are usually talking about their body, talking about sex, talking about birth control. I talk to them with their mom present, without their mom present, and just kind of answer all their questions and lay it out. And it's kind of nice for me because I can develop this relationship with them before they have to have any kind of uncomfortable exam. Yeah. And a lot of those girls actually will choose to get an IUD. And so they end up having to have a pelvic exam sooner than they otherwise would have because they want to go ahead and get that really effective type of birth control and they do great with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. I just, that popped into my brain. Cause I was like, wait a second. I've heard, I've heard differing. I know I'm a lot older than you, but when we were kids, you had to get the pap smear at 18 mm-hmm. or when you became sexually active, but now it's, uh, it's 21 mm-hmm. and it's so much better because it saves all of these young women, uncomfortable procedures and surgeries and things that they actually don't need to prevent cancer because their bodies will fight it off. Right. Yeah. All right. Love to hear that advancements. All right. This next one is more on the, the slang end of, I would call it just maybe an urban dictionary, if you will. Yeah, we can have a segment on delivery, right? Yeah. So like after delivery, you know, tearing totally normal. Is it a thing? The daddy stitch. (laughs) Very significant thoughts about this. All right. First of all, no. I put everything back so that it looks like it did before. I do not make it tighter. I do not. I put it back the way that it was. That's a normal vagina. And I have had several husbands, boyfriends, moms that are in the room with their daughters delivering that mention that, you know, husband stitch. And I have developed different ways to respond to that over the years. Typically my response to the partner, the boyfriend, the husband is so how small do we need it? Mm-hmm. And I hold <laughs> is this what we're looking for? Or, you know, how how small do you need it to be? Show me. <laughs> Because the thing is, like the the gratification or the enjoyment from sex is not based on the size of the opening. The vagina is a closed, flat tube unless there's something in it. So there is always the availability to have friction regardless of how tight the introitus or the opening to the vagina is. That is just the old mental myth that somebody along the way... Oh, came up with and I just got really, it really gets to me. Um, <sighs> recently I had a patient who pushed out a 10 pound baby hmm. did it like a fucking champ and didn't complain. And the dad is standing next to the baby warmer, you know, taking pictures, looking at the baby and looks over at me and says, Hey, don't forget to stitch that up nice and tight. <clears throat> and I was just like, do you understand what your wife just did? No. Not a and you, you know, how small is your penis? 
because apparently mm. you need to, you know, stitch this up really tight. Wow. I would have been so ill. Uh, so anyone that's wondering what the daddy stitch is still, it's to make a woman's vagina's opening smaller after yes. childbirth. Mm-hmm. So it's, clo- it's sewing that tear closed, but also putting in extra stitches to make the opening smaller. <laughs> Which is honestly just comical. You know, they're, and they're all, they're really funny stories from residency. Like, about, let me like, sew your anus closed. <laughs> like, like, yeah. But uh, back in, in residency, there was a resident that was a couple years younger than I was that, you know, I came in to check on her after she was doing this repair on a patient that had a tear. And I come in and she's actually sewn it closed. I didn't realize it. So we had to... You definitely want to have a vaginal opening. Mm-hmm. You don't want to sew the whole thing closed because that will cause some um, some other problems. But, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it can be hard to identify what goes with what, you know, if it's a little. Residency must have been wild. <laughs> something else. Mm-hmm. So about everything. Moving on to a little bit of a lighter topic. <laughs> um, for women, and I think you kind of mentioned this in the last episode. So um, forgive me if this is a little bit of a repeat. And we kind of already talked about just what you should do to support your hormonal health. But for women that are trying to conceive, should they be doing something specific to prepare for that? Whether it's take vitamins, track their cycle, you know, kind of sounds like just being having a healthy lifestyle is always a good idea. But are there any specifics that women should be doing? Because I know you mentioned most pregnancies are not intentional. So how important is it that they actually do? Pregnancies are not planned. So the, I think the important things, there's nothing that's most important, but the important things are being at a healthy weight and, you know, which usually involves eating pretty healthy, not using alcohol, marijuana, other types of substances, not smoking. Smoking can actually cause infertility. Mm. It makes it so that the egg can't go through the fallopian tube. It makes the little, what we call cilia or little hairs in the fallopian tube, very sticky. Mm. It'll, it'll decrease the chance that egg and sperm meet. So stop smoking, stop smoking weed, start taking a prenatal vitamin and eat healthy and keep your weight at, at a good level. I think the period apps where you kind of watch your cycle are super helpful. They're especially helpful to me as the OBGYN when the patient can go back through for me for the past six months and tell me what her cycles have been like. Mm. I know based on how many days long her cycle is, if she's ovulating, if she's not, and that will sort of shape the different treatments that I offer for her if she's not getting pregnant when she wants to. So if someone has been monitoring their cycle for six months, timing intercourse and they're not pregnant, that's usually when I start doing some blood work and different testing to check their fertility. Typically, people usually say a year, you wait a year, but if someone's really monitoring their cycles and timing intercourse for the middle of their cycle and they're not pregnant within six months, then I start, you know, looking into that a little bit. It can get frustrating. When you decide you want to get pregnant, you want to be pregnant like yesterday. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And each cycle feels like an eternity, especially those last two weeks where you're waiting to find out if you're pregnant or not. And then when they get their period, the hormone changes that come with that, plus the disappointment, it can be really, really difficult. So, you know, if someone tells you, oh, just wait a year and that doesn't feel right to you or 
you are getting more frustrated or more anxious before that, then you come in and get the testing sooner. I usually also check to see if the patient's immune to rubella because that's something that I vaccinate them for before they get pregnant and chickenpox. The rubella and chickenpox are two infections you can get that can actually hurt the baby. Um, So we make sure that women are immune to that. You can also have screening for different genetic disorders before you get pregnant too. Yeah, I think that's that's becoming a little more common these days. Yeah. And then our last question that we have surrounding pregnancy and childbirth in relation to that is, you know, following when you're done um, and current laws on hysterectomies. Because I have heard that it's not always easy to get one. Like sometimes your husband might have to have a say in whether they think that you can have one or not. So what is the process of that? That's not a thing. Okay, good. (laughs) Um, So for tying someone's tubes to prevent pregnancy in the future, that's a very routine procedure that we do to prevent pregnancy. They have to sign a consent form saying, I'm agreeing to doing this procedure that is going to make me sterile make me not be able to have children anymore. And it is meant to be permanent and not reversible. Mm -hmm. So I never do a procedure like that unless the person is 187% sure they do not want to have any more babies because it is meant to be permanent. And taking someone's uterus out is the same thing. Mm So they have to be very, very, very sure that they do not want to ever carry a baby ever again in their life. And for some people, that's a very difficult decision. So if the person hasn't completely decided that they want to end their childbearing, then I recommend they get an IUD or go on some other form of birth control until they do decide. That or a husband could also play with the vasectomy. Yeah. So getting a vasectomy is less invasive than anything I would do to the woman. Right. So that's usually my first recommendation. And a lot of women that have an IUD will continue the IUD because it makes their period lighter or non-existent, mm-hmm. but they don't have to rely on that for birth control if their husband has a vasectomy. So the vasectomy is a really simple outpatient procedure. They have to sit around for three days after with ice on their balls and not lift anything. And then they're fine. Simple. They, go, they have to, they have to go back. They have to have so many emissions over three months and then go back to make sure they're shooting blanks and then they should be good to go. And, it, and from what I know, it's reversible, correct? It's reversible, but it's not meant to be reversible. Right. Okay. So I think, you know, I definitely wouldn't do any of the surgical procedures like hysterectomy, tubal ligation, or vasectomy, unless you are sure. Sure. That you don't want to have any more kids. But it's, but yes, technically it is reversible. But don't have it in mind that it's reversible. When making a decision like right. that, you definitely want it we'll to do be. Have between kids and then just reverse it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Well, Last time in our episode together, we had a lot of myths and things that we kind of brought up along the way in the conversation, and there's just so many out there. So we have just five quickly to wrap up. thought it'd be kind of fun to play a little game of fact or fiction. Is this true? Is this BS? What is it? So (laughs) our, our first one is you cannot get pregnant while on your period. Typically, no. Okay. But some people will have irregular periods, so you don't really know when they ovulate. So some people have very, very short cycles. So say you only have a 21-day cycle. With that, typically you ovulate around day 7 to 10. You may still be having your period then. Mm -hmm. But most people 
have about five days of bleeding. Then they ovulate nine to 10 days later. So they usually know you don't get pregnant on your period, but you could. So just use a condom. Just get on birth control. And the next factor fiction. We've heard a lot of things about this one growing up. I personally heard from, you know, friends' parents and stuff, like, well, not directly from their parents, they, whatever, like from my friend's mouth who were told, sleeping in a bra is bad for you. Or even worse, it could cause cancer, right? Like the underwire, like. That's is it, total bullshit. It's a comfort thing. It's a comfort thing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I personally don't mind sleeping in a sports bra. Like they're, they're nice and compressed and we're not flying all over the place. Mm-hmm. Like that's comfortable for me. But some people are like, you can't wear underwire. You're going to get cancer. That's, com- that's a complete myth. But then, but then it's the opposite. It's like, oh, if you don't wear a bra, tell me if I'm wrong. Tell me you have not heard this. If you don't wear a bra, you're going to have saggy boobs. Mm-hmm. You're going to have saggy boobs regardless. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you have children and if your mom had saggy boobs, it's more an issue with the tissue quality. And it's the same with pelvic prolapse. Like if your mom's shit was falling out when she was 60, yours probably will too. There you go. Yeah. Well, I don't know if we covered this one the last episode, but our podcast is called Synced for a Reason because mine Hannah Cycles just said, we're going to be synced up. (laughs) So fact or fiction, women who are in close proximity or spend a lot of time together, there is some kind of reason that their cycles sync up. That's fact. And I've actually had um, women who are postmenopausal that when their college age daughters come home, they get a period. Wow. My mind is blown. So weird. so weird, but it happens. Yeah. That's crazy. Synced podcast has just been endorsed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> By every uterus right. in the planet. Right. Wow. And Isn't is there a reason for that? So interesting to think about that. Unless they're on like some type of hormonal birth control that's regulating it outside of what their body is trying to do. But it's like evolution. No one's, on birth control, no one's on any type of hormones to suppress their cycle. It's very likely they'll sync up. Yeah. It's just that evolution, like, right? Like survival of the fittest, like who can get pregnant? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Crazy. Mind blown. Okay. This next one, next one, fact or fiction, there is a female G-spot. That is fact. Fact. Yes. And um, it's different in different people. And some people don't get increased pleasure from it and some do. So that's why there's so much controversy about it. Mm. So there is an area, it's usually a third of the way up in the anterior vagina that has more blood flow and more nerves there. And it... It sort of corresponds to where the male prostate is in the male's pelvis. And so that's why it's thought there's just, you know, as part of development, there's just more nerves that grow into that area. But men don't sometimes realize is that like jamming your finger up there and poking up there does not stimulate. <laughs> so like, that's not what you do. Um, it's, it's something that can be stimulated with, sex or with a vibrator or something like that. But for most people, they don't really get as much, as much pleasure from that as they do from the external stimulation. Mm, Good to know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Yeah. Don't be shoving it. (laughs) 
You're not going to get there quicker, faster, or better. Just don't. <laughs> Just don't do it. No, that kills the vibe. Get, <laughs> you have killed the vibe. You did, not, <laughs> you did not pass the vibe check. Oh, wow. So our last one, and I've heard this several times. I feel like I saw some maybe probably 99% bogus article the other day that said that this is true, but I don't know if there's any actual research to support this, but bigger butts are a sign of fertility. So it depends on what culture you are. Generally speaking, in in most cultures that have not been affected by westernization, then more voluptuous or bigger women were considered more fertile. That is partially because if you have more fat on your body, you're more likely to be ovulatory. Being more voluptuous or being bigger, having a bigger butt, whatever, does not mean obese. Sure. Mm-hmm. So um, you have to kind of, because in the United States, it's it's kind of messed up here. Like the BMI scale <laughs> and all that. So there have been these different studies on cultures like in the, you know, Asian, Pacific, Indonesia, these different places where they were never exposed to TV or magazines or anything like that. In those cultures, the women that had more fat on their body were considered more fertile and were more desirable. Mm -hmm. As usually, if you had some more fat, that meant that you weren't starving and that your family was rich enough to have food and that you were probably ovulatory and able to have babies. If you're super skinny usually that sort of hormone exchange doesn't happen correctly and you don't ovulate. So when we see women who are ultra athletes that have really low body fat or women who are anorexic that Mm -hmm. have very low body mass index, they don't ovulate. So, so culturally it's, it's seen as a sign of fertility and Really, you know, the women that you see in sculptures that have like a little bit of a belly and a little bit of fat, like that's a normal size woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, women are not meant to be rails eight and a hundred pounds. Like that's right. not that's not normal at all. So when they brought in westernization and TV and magazines to these communities of indigent people in Indonesia. Fiji, different places, they immediately developed, um, almost immediately developed body dysmorphia. Mm-hmm. Um, they looked at their bodies and they looked at the bodies of the people on TV and in magazines and were like, oh, this must not be right. If this is what's desirable, I'm not desirable, you know, being fat like this. So it's it's a very interesting social experiment um, for people that have never been exposed to that information and people that are exposed to that information. And you see it as girls grow up, you know, for instance, my daughter is seven and she has a normal weight for her. She, you know, looks at other kids and sees that she has a belly or her legs are bigger, her butt's bigger. And, you know, I think because we encourage that, like she doesn't care. It's not mm-hmm. bothering her that she wears a bigger size than her friends. But over the course of the next few years, and as she gets into adolescence, it's it's going to be an issue because of of what you see in the media. Mm-hmm. So it's more about your body fat and women that tend to have more body fat maybe 
have the ability to support women that ovulation? Right, the right amount of body fat. Okay. Too much prevents pregnancy. Too little prevents pregnancy. We kind of want to be in the sweet spot mm-hmm. of, of the normal kind of mid-range BMI to support good fertility. So y'all heard it live. This is a gynecologist, y'all. It's not us. I mean, we didn't even talk about depression, anxiety. Save that for another one. She said, got another one. Chunky, (laughs) a little chunky. Support yourself. Y'all heard it from the vision. I can't even say it. The average person, the average woman is five foot four. Mm -hmm. And so, (laughs) Haley and I are like, you're little guys. guys. So, your normal weight is anywhere between 115 and 145. Mm-hmm. It's a very wide range of what's normal. And if you're a little bit above that, it's fine. If you're a little bit below that, it's fine. But it's when you get to those like extremes of very thin or obese that it can start affecting your health and your fertility. Wait a second. So before I made the amazing switch to you, my previous doctor, my previous gynecologist would have conversations about, which tell me if this is normal or not. I don't know. Like during the exam, do you exercise? And like telling me I need to exercise and telling me like how many times a day, what I it would be like your college tuition pays for it. Why are you not going to the gym? I think that's a shaming mentality. I don't like that. I was like, I, I think people should exercise because it helps with stress and it makes them feel good, but it's, what you're putting in your body and 20% your activity that's going to give you the weight and the body fat percentage that you have. So people that are just active, like as long as you, all you need to do is go for a walk for 30 minutes a day. Boom. We got that. (laughs) Yeah. It does not need to be some kind of crazy intense, you know, throwing up at the end workout and starving yourself. Like that's not where it is. It's just that we as a culture have gotten to this point where we do a lot of emotional eating, emotional drinking, and then we feel like if we exercise, that makes up for it. Mm. Completely the wrong mentality. We just need to give our bodies fuel that serves our body and makes our body healthy. And we exercise because it's fun and helps with stress. And I am glad you made the switch because now we have the magician (laughs) on our side and forget that other doctor because they were trash. Bodies come in all shapes and sizes. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if you see someone one time for their annual exam, you have no idea where they are in their journey of Mm -hmm. that year. You know, you could have been on the decline of your weight. You Mm -hmm. could have been on an upswing because something was going on and you were eating emotionally. Like Mm -hmm. no one needs make assumptions that you're just not doing it right. Right. Like I, I usually approach that from the place of how do you feel about your body? Do you, how do you, what's your body image like? Yeah. Do you like where your weight is right now? How do you feel about it? Like we do. I mean, everyone feels differently. I have it's wild. He would even, y'all, he would even pull out a chart and point to a weight amount and say, this is like the weight that it was within, it was a five pound range of what he basically told me I should weigh. He I sounds like a misogynist. Yeah. I think that's completely insensitive. 100%. I mean, that I just kind of blows my mind. Thinking. I mean, and maybe because I'm a woman and my weight has been up and down and I've struggled with it throughout my life. I'm more sensitive to it, but I really feel like 
pulling out a chart is not, is not not the thing because it's telling you you're not good enough or you're not doing it well. That next year, baby, I didn't drop those five pounds. I had anxiety going into my appointment. I'm like, oh, here we go. The weight talk again. Why? I shouldn't have felt like that. And then you put off going and getting your normal health maintenance because you're worried about that. Yeah, I put it off for a while until I was like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm making the switch. We are, we love our bodies and we are happy they've gotten us to this point. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of my patients, I'm like, we love your body because look what it's given you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's given you this life and you're an athlete or you love to be outside and you can do all of these things. You've had babies, you, whatever, whatever it is. Like we love, we love that body and it is good enough no matter what size you are. If you want to be healthier and live longer and, you know, support your body, then there's a certain way to eat and things to avoid. But we don't like, we don't dislike you or shame you because your body's not the size someone else says it should be. That's ridiculous. Love you. Dr. H. We cannot thank you enough for coming and joining us and your wisdom and knowledge and just female empowerment vibe. Yes. Thanks for having me. It's off the chart, and we will schedule our next one. Yeah, y'all already know. know. <laughs> this is not even a goodbye. This is a see you next episode. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for your time, your expertise, just everything. It has been monumentally helpful to not only us, but the viewers. And I don't know if we got a chance to reach out. I think we did, but I had several people reach out last episode that were maybe struggling with thoughts of miscarriage, infertility, just general women's health questions. And they told me that they were like, I love this woman. This is honestly the information I needed. So I hope it reaches some people that, you know, are uncomfortable talking about these things. Really, you should feel comfortable talking to your OBGYN about all of these things, Mm -hmm. sexual health, libido, sex, miscarriage, emotional issues how you feel about your body, all of those things are so important to your general health that, you know, I feel like I ask them, not maybe not everyone knows to ask, but if your doctor doesn't ask, please bring it up. Please don't. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. Thank you so much oh, for your time. You and until next time, we will hear from you in a couple weeks, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be it for us on our... We out. Peace.